Hi, this is Pastor Jake from Harvest Community Church. We meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. at 18511 East Hampton Avenue, Suite 204. We're located in the Movie Tavern Shopping Center next to the State Farm. You can check us out online at Facebook or on our webpage at harvestcolorado.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. We're in Psalm 89. We're finishing our last uh, of the 80s. Um, oh, yeah, Anne's group can go. Just start walking out. Listen, you won't be different than some adults, okay? If you'd be like, no, there they go. We're finishing up our, our series in the, uh, Psalm 80 through 89, um, and we're in Psalm 89 this morning. It's a long one, uh, so uh, I'd invite you to get coffee, but most of you already have it. So it's a good one, though, this morning. So read along with me if you choose. Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. And in the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made my covenant with my chosen one. And I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and an awesome above all who are around him. O Lord of God, or Lord God of hosts, who is mighty among you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the seas. When the waves rise, you still them. When you crushed Rahab like a carcass, you scattered your enemies around uh, with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours and the earth is also yours and the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, Joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk in the o Lord in the light of your face, who exalt the name all day long, and in your righteousness are exalted, or in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of your strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King and the Holy One of Israel. And of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with his holy oil. With holy oil I have anointed him that my hand shall, uh, shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and my name shall be his, or shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand at the sea and right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, my rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep with him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for, uh, for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish the transgressors with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove my, from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure. His throne, as long as the sun was before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness to the skies. But now you've cast us off, 
and rejected. You were full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown with dust. You have breached his walls and you have laid the strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him and he's become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made his enemies rejoice. You have turned your back at the edge of the sword. And you have made, or have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease, his cast is thrown to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth, and you are you have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created the children of man? What can uh, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which your, your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in the heart the insults of all, many, all the many nations, for which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. And amen. Super Bowl Sunday, as you might well know, if you didn't know that, you're probably living under a rock or just don't care about sports. Uh, on the other hand, well, I knew it. I knew it was coming. We all know it's coming. And I thought it was appropriate today to kind of reminisce about the glory days. See, I know the glory days of the Broncos as well as many of you do. Not the four, three Super Bowls prior, but the twos in 97 and 98 or 98, 99, whichever you want to choose, call it. I remember the glory days of the promise of the Elways and the Terrell Davises and this great defense. And I remember the times of Peyton Manning. I remember dealing with the excitement and the promise of glorious championships. And then it all fell apart. It just went to the, well, I can't say that word up here, but you know where it went. I thought of that today as we were reading the psalm. The psalmist talks about this glory days talks about this time of like oh god you're amazing and you do all these things and you promise all these awesome things and then it just kind of utterly falls apart it reminds me of sometimes when your kids they're doing so well they're doing great they're living in the promises of all that you promised them they do great they're doing all their chores and then it seems like the wheels just fall off and some sort of crazy thing which you didn't see coming and they start going, oh my gosh, my parents hate me. What happened? When did the wheels fall off? When did things go from, bad, from great to worse to even worse? When did that happen? Well, this psalm is a very interesting one. It, albeit it's rather long, and I, I commend you for sticking with it because it's hard to read all of these verses all at once. It's hard, to, but it was important that you guys understand the feeling of what the psalmist is getting after here. He starts off in the psalm with this call to worship for God's faithfulness and mercy and enduring covenant towards David. You see, God made this amazing promise to this servant David. Uh, out of nowhere comes this king whom God has chosen and it's bestowed amazing and eternal blessings on. It's utterly faithful to him. God himself gets involved in the life of this poor shepherd and says, you're going to be the guy and I mean, you're going to lead my people and I will be with you forever and always. The psalmist goes on to talk about how God's personal involvement in Israel's world was made manifest in all of these great signs. God coming in and rescuing David and, and, uh, and rescuing Israel out of sure destruction. Enemies that were uh, guaranteed to destroy them. He grants amazing victories. 
God establishes with David and with Israel by proxy a covenantal relationship with them, and especially towards the king of Israel and his children. He says, you are mine. I claim you. You're my kids. And I will never leave you or forsake you. But at the end of this great series of amazing truths comes this lament. And I thought it was odd. It should have maybe been two psalms. You know, one, yay, God, we love you. You're amazing and you do all these great stuff. And now the wheels have fallen off. And yet it seems like right in the middle of this great praise, the wheels fall off. And the writer expresses what's going on in his life and going on in the life of the king and in the life of the country. It becomes this lament of disappointment. A lament of disappointment that the promise does not seem to be playing out in reality. That the packaging of what it says on the outside doesn't match what you put together. If you've ever had the opportunity to put together furniture from Ikea or from Target or anywhere else, I'm sure that in our, in our uh, family, we have had, I think, probably tens of maybe hundreds of pieces of furniture that we've put together over the years. Bookcases, you know, those cheap, flimsy ones made out of, uh, well, sometimes cardboard, sometimes, you know, pieced together wood. And it says, put this here and do this and do this. And if you're like me, instructions are just suggestions. They're not really something you ought to follow. And when things don't look right, it falls apart. And the promise of an amazing bookshelf looks like something uh, out of a horror film. This almost seems to be telling us something similar to this. The appearance is of God's rejection and abandonment. You see, here is this great promise that says David's kids are going to be set free and, and it's going to be an amazing kingship. And now it's not. And it looks like God has totally abandoned them. And it looks like there is no hope. It appears like God has renounced his covenant. In the first half of the psalm, you're like, my covenant is forever and God will be with me forever. And it'll be awesome and amazing and totally cool. And now reality doesn't seem to match that. So what do you do? How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile the appearance that God himself has abandoned the entire country whom he, he had promised to? This is an, an expression in the very end of the psalm of disappointment and a prayer of complaint. It's like a cry that says, how much longer until reality matches this promise? When will the picture, when will my life match the picture for which you have painted already? When will I get to see the other side of the quilt? Not the, not the, the one with all the threads going everywhere and where the, uh, you know, the needles are, are, are in and out and, and the threads look all frayed. When will I get to see the other side? How much longer? He says it in the end of the psalm. Oh, Lord, how much longer? Because this stuff's getting old. I can't deal with this stuff anymore. How much longer am I going to have tragedy in my life? When will I see the sun rise? You see, this psalm at the very end of it is mostly a battle between what the psalmist felt and what he knew. It's the difference between what our heads know and what our heart feels. The way it is versus the way it should be. If God is for me, who can be against me? But right now, boy, it feels like you are totally and utterly against me. The wheels have fallen off. Everything is going sour. How do I deal with disappointment? How, does it, how do I deal with this when I wake up every morning and feel like God has completely abandoned me, that I have no connection to him whatsoever? That is the question the psalmist asks. 
How do I reconcile reality with promise? Here's what I came up with. Many times when we're in, the, uh, we're in a phase of, of being down, it's because we lack the discipline or we, we lack the self-examination to understand the why. The psalmist is lamenting the fact that the promise doesn't match or his life doesn't match the promise. He's lamenting the fact that he's got all these negative things happening, but he's not looking at the why. There was a clear reason why David's kingdom kind of fell apart. It's because they stopped living according to God's instructions, how it ought to be. They stopped paying attention to that. This is, if you want a bookcase, this is the instructions on how to make a great bookcase. You follow it, you get a good bookcase. But when you go off script and go, that must be wrong. I don't really need that screw there. I don't need that clip here. I don't really need to turn it this way. Eventually the thing falls apart and the psalmist seems to be lacking some self-examination. He's saying, how long, Lord? How long? How long? And God's going the same thing. How long? It seems as if God uses circumstances and consequences as discipline. Moms and dads in the room, we understand what this is like. We understand it's as if God has given parents the ability to look inside and go, I understand where God's coming from here. When our kids blow it, we discipline. When their worlds are coming apart at the seams, a lot of the times it's because of something they may have done incorrectly. It was no different to the, the country and nation of Israel. It was no different to the, the kings of Israel. And it's as if God is trying to let him know, the psalmist know, through his trials and the, and the felt pain and the felt abandonment that discipline hurts. Look, I don't know anybody as a parent or even as a, a worker where discipline doesn't feel bad. If you're at work and your boss tells you, hey, listen, you're doing, uh, we love you and we're glad you're here, but here are the things you're doing wrong. And if you're feeling bad, right, if you're feeling like things aren't going right, it's because you're probably doing something incorrectly. When our kids come home and say, oh, Mom, Dad, I'm so upset. My teacher hates me. Well, are you doing your homework? No. Well, are you upset about your grades? Yeah. Or are you doing the work? No. Discipline hurts. I think it's important for us to understand that the psalmist here is talking about this misunderstanding of the covenantal relationship. When you get a promise that says you're going to have all of these amazing things and, and God will never leave you and forsake you, there's this idea that, oh, well, they must be all sunshine and comfort. They, that fairy dust and unicorns must be sprouting around because God has said, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. But God's grace is not immunity from God's discipline. God's covenant relationship with us does not make us immune to when we blow it or to the fact that we live in a sinful world and circumstances happen sometimes. I think the psalmist is writing from the latter part of the psalm from a point of view of feeling disciplined by God. How long? When will things get put right? When will things be okay again? When will I feel like the promise is there? Because it feels bad. And it feels like he's been rejected. See, discipline really is just an unpleasant experience. 
It feels unjust, it feels lonely, and it feels unexpected sometimes. See, when we ground our children, when they blow it, like this past week we had an incident where one of our kids did something and we had to call them out on it. You know, when you call your kids out on things that they do wrong, the first thing they feel is like, mom, dad, hate me. They've abandoned their love and all is bad. Doors get slammed. You know, uh, have you seen this daughter? Well, no, she's been in a room pouting the entire time. There's this feeling inside of that room of like, ah, raging against the world. My parents hate me and they've, they've done horrible things. And, ah, and then they move on from that to, I'm so lonely. Uh, what, what, what do I need to do to make this right? How, how can I fix this? I need to fix this. It's really fun. And for parents, it's also the same time we feel the least connected to our kids as well. Yet this is how it is with God when he deals with us sometimes through circumstances and through consequences. Sometimes we rage against God. How can you take this away from me? How can you do this one thing that I love so much? How can you do this to me? And we walk away. We rage. The psalmist is doing the same thing here. So we're in good company. But I would think, though, that the good news here is that God disciplines those who are part of his family. We rarely discipline other people's children, mostly because it's not our job. And mostly because they would think that we're strange if we came home and said, listen, I granted your son today for the things he did wrong in my house. That wouldn't work. Although there have been times when I would choose to do that. But God disciplines those who are part of his family. Do you ever have friends who had cool parents? You know what I mean by cool parents, right? Parents who, who were palling around with their, like Jim and Vicky. Well, that's because he said it, but... What I mean by cool parents are so those are the ones that where the kids got away with everything. The kids that were like, mom, dad were like, eh, whatever. Just let them go roll and sow their, their oats and do whatever they want to do. The kids got away with everything. They were completely undisciplined. Well, how did they turn out? They go through life thinking that everything is perfectly fine. They can do whatever they want. No consequences, nothing. My sister is the total opposite of this kind of parent. My sister is one of the most hard-nosed people that I know. And she uh, was a single mom for quite some time. And oh my gosh, she was on her kids. Those kids turned out amazing. Two of her sons are at Mesa State University right now. They are excelling because their, their mom was on them about things. She didn't let them get away with things. She disciplined when she needed to. She was hard when she had to be. She, had, she helped them uh, face consequences when necessary, but she loved them unconditionally. And I thought of her this week as I was reading this psalm. God is in the same way. Yes, sometimes God is hard on us. Sometimes God is, uh, disciplines us with, with, things, with consequences and with circumstances, but in the same way, he never leaves us or forsakes us. It's not as if when God gets angry with us and pulls things back and helps us feel abandoned as if he has actually left. His chastisement sometimes and punishment for sin expresses his disappointment, but at the same time, he never leaves. He's an eternal parent who is interested in the best of us. 
interested in seeing us exceed and excel. He's interested in seeing our best good come. But there's a danger here. There's a danger that while God's painful discipline is necessary to us, it can shape how we view him. God's discipline of us and God's painful uh, bringing us through things, uh, circumstances and consequences will sometimes shape our perception of him in a negative way. Think for a moment how you think of God. How do you view him? Do you view him as a, a doting father, as cool parent? Let's me get away with anything I want. Grace. We throw that out there every once in a while. Or do we think of him as a hard-nosed disciplinarian? I mean, just on you. Thumbs down. Did you do your thing? Did you do this? Did you do that? And just riding you like crazy. Do you view him as absentee? Well, he's here every once in a while. I rarely see him. Or do you see him as not even in the picture? How do you view God? How does discipline, his consequences and circumstances, how does that shape, how has it shaped your perception of him? You see, when God disciplines his people, there, become, there is an emotional toll. Just in the same way when you discipline your children or have been disciplined by your parents, there is an emotional toll that is taken. It affects you. And I, I would submit to you this morning that God's correction of us shapes how people view him. Look in verses 46 through 48. How long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself forever? Are you angry with me? Are you full of wrath still against me? Are you even around? Why did you make me? I'm going to die. And this is your fault. Where's your steadfast love? Where's your faithfulness? See, circumstances or consequences will often often bolster one of two perceptions about God. Number one, he's a cruel master, hell-bent on making my life miserable. He's too involved. He's a micromanager of me. He's just thumbing down on me all the time, or he just doesn't care. He has withdrawn his presence from me. But our perception of God, though uh, through the lens of discipline, generally results in two reactions from us. One, Irreligious abandonment, like the prodigal son who basically does a middle finger to God or to his father and says, I'm going to go do it like I want to do it. I'm out of here. All of your discipline on me, I'm out from under your thumb and I'm out of here. Give me what's mine. I'm gone. Or the opposite way. Ultra religious adherence like this, like the older brother. Oh, he's disciplining me. Okay, okay. I need to do better. I need to do more for him. I need to, uh, I need to obey even more than he uh, go above and beyond. I need to be the super student. I need to be the super son. Whatever you want, God, I'll do it. Well, uh, if you want me to go to Africa, I'll go to Africa. Or you want me to, you know, uh, you know, wear sackcloth and ashes all day long, every day. I'll, I'll do that. Whatever it is. I want to earn God's favor through behavioral changes, but generally both responses lead to the same conclusion that number one, God, good behavior doesn't earn grace and immoral behavior doesn't exclude you from God's mercy. You can't obey enough and be a good son enough to make yourself more of a son of God or daughter of God. And you can't do enough bad to have him disown you. And that is the conclusion that comes that is why our perception of God needs to be rooted in one thing and one thing only. And that is the truth of his covenant. 
So how do we save ourselves from these, this despair and despondency? We root ourselves in the truth of what God, who God is to us, who he has made himself to be for us. We root ourselves in his covenant. If you look at verses 31 through 34. Let's start at verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my, my, or false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter a word that went forth from my lips. Later on in 36, it says, his offspring shall endure forever. See, God alone is the covenant creator and the covenant keeper. He doesn't rely, he doesn't rely on us in order to maintain or enforce it. Obedience does not make me uh, a better son of God, nor does my disobedience make me less of a child of God either. His grace is his favor towards us based upon his goodness, based upon his mercy. See, God expands his covenant with humanity through the work of Christ on our behalf. No longer is it just the nation of Israel that is in this covenant relationship with God. See, Jesus, whom verses 19 through 29 ultimately point to, was cast off and rejected. His crown was thrown down. Jesus ends up taking the ultimate punishment for sin in our place to give us what was ultimately his, which is a covenant with God. All that Jesus has with the Father is now bestowed to all of us, and we are included as the heirs of the king, uh, the kingship that is written about here. We are kids of the king by his grace and by his covenant. And in his death and resurrection for us, he makes us part of his forever family. See, by his death, we become part of the lineage of the king of kings. So no longer are we just servants of the king, but like the characters in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we are now part of that royal family. We are like Lucy and Edmund. Because of our adoption as sons and daughters, our place with God is secure. There isn't anything that you and I can do to remove ourselves from the good grace of God because it is his to give and what he gives us is his alone, and it is eternal. There isn't anything that you and I can do in this room right now that will remove that relationship from us, for nothing can separate us from the love of God, as it says in Romans. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Our blessedness does not depend upon our perfect observance of God's law. Theologian Menzel says, Consolation and blessedness depends on God's mercy and goodness. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Paul writes, what God has started in us, he will see through to completion. And later in Romans, like I said, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So what happens when we're being disciplined? Because like any good parent, we blow up with God on a, on a, time, on a daily basis. Me, I am the chief of all sinners, okay? I don't stand up to you as some other holy guy. I'm just like you. I have my peccadillos. I have my things. And I have my times when I blow it right in front of the very presence of God. And God disciplines me sometimes. And it is painful and it is disappointing. So how do you deal with it? Quickly, I'll say this. Number one, 
not all circumstances are God's discipline. I think it's a mistake for us to believe that every time something bad happens, it's because we did something wrong. Jack Handy, the comedian, once said something silly. He said, every time it rains, I like to tell children it's God's crying. And then he says he likes to do something even worse. He tells them it's because of something they did. I know it's terrible. Not every bad thing in this world is because of something you did. Not every consequence that you face, not every time that something bad happens is because you sinned. Jesus even dealt with this in the, in the Gospels. He said, he was faced with this man who was blind and people were like, well, who sinned? His mother or father to cause him to have sin? He's like, nobody. This happened so that they could glorify God in his healing. Not every bad thing that happens to you is because of something you did. However, there are times when God will discipline us because of things we've done wrong. So what do we do? Number one, just like the psalmist here, be honest in your prayers. God asks us not for to be uh, ultra holy in front of him in the sense in which we try too hard or ultra bad. But he simply says, listen, when you blow it, you come and you be honest. God, I feel away from you. I feel lonely. I feel abandoned by you. What's going on? Show me what's going on in my heart. But be prepared for his honesty too. Honesty goes both ways with a relationship with God. Some days, sometimes when you pray, he'll respond and sometimes when the light bulb comes on in your soul and you realize that you're the one at fault, be prepared for that. It's okay to be honest with God, but also wait for his honesty as well. And secondly, I would say this. When that honesty comes from God and shows you where you're at, sometimes you can be uh, in a place where you can get really down and really start to despair like the psalmist did. How long, oh God? When is this going to end? When is this going to end? What will anchor your soul when you feel this utter despair? Here's what I would say. I would tell you to speak truth to your soul. You see, despair can lead to living in your head, a place of half-truth and conspiracy. But the covenant, the covenant of God is what will anchor you. Tell yourself the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Speak the truth of God's word to your soul. You can say it like the psalmist, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Speak to your soul. Tell it the truth. It needs to hear it to thrive. Jesus said, or the psalmist goes on to say, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. You look way over into the New Testament book of Hebrews. Let me read you these couple of verses. Hebrews 12. If you want to know what discipline's like and how to deal with it, this is the chapter. But I'll read these couple of verses for you. Verses 5 and 6. And have, uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. Speak to your soul the truth. And lastly, rest in God's covenant and endure his discipline. I would tell you to do this. When you're faced with discipline, when you're faced with times of despair and wondering why you're in this pickle, take the long view. Too often we look really close at our current circumstances and go, well, this is all there is. The covenant of God invites us to look at the long view. To look ahead and go, wait a minute, God's promises for my best. And one day 
even maybe not in this life, but maybe one and one day he has promised that it will all work out. Take the long view. Rest in his covenant that while we're walking through this valley of the shadow of death, there is an end to the valley. There is an end to it. And, and God's intention is thus to bring us out of one valley into a place of rest. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The psalmist here hasn't taken a long view. However, if you look at the very last verse, blessed be the Lord forever. You see, his trust is in him to one day take us to the next place. It's a disappointment. We're all going to go through it. But take heart. Jesus has been there for us 